Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, your host for today's show. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Ian Rowan about his new book, One China, Many Taiwans, The Geopolitics of Cross-Strait Tourism. This book is published by Cornell University Press in 2023. One China, Many Taiwans shows how tourism performs and transforms territory. In 2008, as the People's Republic of China pointed over a thousand missiles across the Taiwan Strait, it sends millions of tourists in the same direction with the encouragement of Taiwan's politicians and business people. Contrary to the PRC's efforts to use tourism to incorporate Taiwan into an imaginary one China, tourism aggravated tensions between the two polities, polarized Taiwanese society, and pushed Taiwanese popular sentiment further towards support for national self-determination. Consequently, Taiwan was performed as part of China for Chinese group tourists versus experience as a place of everyday life. Taiwan's national identity grew increasingly plural, such that not just one, not just two, but many Taiwans coexisted, even as it faced an existential military threat. Ian Rowan's treatment of tourism as a political technology provides a new theoretical lens for social scientists to examine the impacts of tourism in the region as well as worldwide. All right, so this is a brief introduction about the book, and now let's hear from the author. Ian, welcome to the show. So much for having me, Liping. All right, so uh, we would like to in- invite you to introduce a little bit about yourself, uh, your research interest, your recent publication, and anything you would like to share with us. Sure. Um, so uh, I'm currently associate professor in the Department of Taiwan Culture, Languages, and Literature at National Taiwan Normal University. I started there uh, just this last August 2022 after teaching for five years at Nanyang Technological University, Singapore, where I helped to start a geography program uh, and taught as well in sociology and urban planning. Uh, prior to that, I was a postdoctoral research fellow at Academia Sinica's Institute of Ethnology. Uh, and uh, where I continued working on this and and other projects, uh, and where I had also been a pre-doctoral scholar while in a Fulbright Fellowship uh, while pursuing a PhD at the University of Colorado at Boulder in geography, which helped set up me uh, for this book. Um, Some recent publications, uh, I would say uh, the longest would be the edited volume of literature and translation, Transitions in Taiwan, Stories of the White Terror, which was published in 2021 by Cambria Press. Uh, It's got a a number of of classic uh, and and, uh, instant classic pieces uh, about the authoritarian era in Taiwan from the late 40s up through the 80s. Uh, Most of my work, apart from that, has been in geography, Asian studies, or tourism journals. Uh, I've uh, been driving this notion of tourism as a geopolitical practice. Uh, I've also done uh, action research on social movements in Taiwan and Hong Kong, including the Sunflower Movement and Umbrella Movement, uh, uh, which I was uh, a participant observer in uh, for both of those. 
So uh, my research interests tend to be driven by uh, events, places that I can uh, really uh, participate in. This tourism research being an example uh, uh, that was an ethnographic project. Uh, the social movements as well are ethnographic, things I, I have personal experience in. Uh, and literature has, has actually been a wonderful complement to that. All right. Um, thank you for sharing, Ian. And especially uh, you mentioned that this kind of participatory and also this experience, uh, personal experience in your uh, research as well. And with that, uh, part of your uh, experience is, you know, traveling on tourism as well. And then this is uh, the topic of this book. So can you tell us a little bit about how you started this project and then uh, any of the um, uh, inspiration or field work? Uh, that inspire you to this uh, start this book? Sure. So uh, I first moved to Taiwan in 2001 uh, to, to deepen my studies in Mandarin language and uh, lived in Taiwan until 2005. And during that time, it was a quite exciting time to observe Taiwan and China relations. Uh, and I moved to China in 2006 uh, and began working as a first as a translator, but soon as a tour guide. Uh, I was taking uh, international tourists, mostly from Europe and the Americas, around China for a year, and then uh, the following year working in a Taiwanese-owned hotel in southwest China, which I had discovered while, while working as a tour guide. And throughout this time, I realized just doing this work, and this was before I had entertained the idea of doing uh, further graduate work uh, or academic study, but I, I realized just in my everyday travels with these tourists and in my interpretations of China for them, I was really shaping their experience. And this mattered interpersonally, of course, for them and, and for me, but it also had larger implications. I was taking tourists from uh, policymaking, from business, from scholarly circles around China. And these were often first time tourists to China and people who would go back to Washington, D.C., to Boston, to London, to Brazil, with ideas of China uh, that might affect the way they interact, the way they put resources into China or their own businesses. The, the tourism actually here wasn't just fun and games. It wasn't just a leisure activity, but it was actually, in many ways, mediating international relations. So that, that was a job, uh, but one that inspired me to pursue graduate work along these lines when uh, I began studying in geography uh, and set up uh, my fieldwork uh, and my my research to come back to Taiwan and and do this work much more in depth uh, to start uh, interviewing Chinese tourists in Taiwan to travel around Taiwan with them and to see Taiwan through their eyes and at the same time to see uh, to see China through the eyes of Taiwanese people who were interacting with these tourists within Taiwan. Uh, essentially, I was very curious, you know, what country did Chinese people think they were in when they came to Taiwan? They, they might have a very different idea about that than Taiwanese people. And what kind of country were they producing in the process? And at that time, there was a lot of hope, and, and we'll discuss this uh, as, as, as we proceed. There was a lot of, uh, I think, um, uh, rosy, people seeing things through rosy glasses that somehow the more Taiwanese and Chinese got to interact with each other, the more they would understand each other, the more they would move towards some kind of reconciliation. And based on my experience working with Taiwanese and Chinese people within Taiwan, and then seeing how they interacted on the ground in Taiwan, I, I wasn't so sure. I didn't want to go in to this research, uh, assuming that ahead of time. Uh, I wanted to see how things actually played out on the ground. And I, I'm really fortunate that I 
did this research when I did because it would be impossible to do now because tourism to Taiwan has collapsed for all kinds of reasons that we'll, we'll continue discussing. Um, the, the last thing I want to say uh, before we proceed is that uh, tourism has been one of the most important modes of contact between Taiwanese and Chinese people, apart from, from business, and there's certainly business and investment uh, going in both directions. Tourism is probably the, the number one uh, most face-to-face -face interaction that, that both sides have had with each other. So it struck me as really a, um, a very interesting way to get a handle on how the relationship between China and Taiwan and Chinese and Taiwanese people was changing and, and changing uh, changing the people uh, and changing the territories themselves. Right. And then thank you for sharing, especially as your job experience as a tour guide and later on as there's a study and also research as a researcher. And then this modes of contact that is facilitated and mediated by tourism, and especially in your case study across Taiwan and China. So uh, now, uh, maybe one of the challenging questions that I have in the store is, uh, actually, we want to hear you talk a little bit more about tourism, and specifically, what is tourism? And how does tourism, this uh, act of border crossing, modes of contact, uh, constitute, reproduce, subvert, uh, conflict with uh, state territory, and also its citizens? Sure. Thanks. So I, I use a, a very general definition of tourism that I borrow from uh, the International Organization of, of, of Tourism, uh, which is basically that tourism uh, is, is any sort of travel by a, a person or a group of persons to a place that they don't usually reside. So that can be crossing a national border, that can be crossing a city border, and so on. It could be for leisure primarily, it could be for business primarily, but I use this fairly general definition of tourism just to, to relate uh, people and, and mobility. Uh, of course, when I was doing the field work, I would, I would spend time with people who identified more as tourists or had joined what are called tour groups. But I use a fairly general definition of tourism and travel. Now, uh, uh, a major argument I make in this book, kind of the central concept that I advance is that tourism performs and transforms state territory. Uh, what I mean by this uh, is to just, again, to remember when talking about tourism, you're talking about a person who, who goes somewhere. You're presuming something, you're presuming how there is a person and, and there is a place they're going to. That person might have an identity of themselves as a particular kind of national. Perhaps they're an American or a Taiwanese or a Chinese. They're going from, say, uh, uh, California to Taipei. So as you travel as, say, a Californian to Taipei, you're presuming something about yourself as a Californian. You're presuming perhaps that California is different than Taipei. You go to a place like Taipei and, and you, you maybe you cross a border along the way. You, you submit your passport to the border guard. Uh, and in so doing, say if you're a U.S. national, you are performing your U.S. nationalness by handing that passport to the border guard uh, at the border crossing, you are performing yourself as uh, coming from where you're coming from and going to where you're going to. And in so doing, you you enact those places. You enact yourself as a particular kind of citizen and you enact that place as a destination. This isn't just a, a stage show. There is a compulsion and force involved. You can't simply 
in most places, you can't simply cross borders without submitting to this sort of authority. But it is with these props and with this staging, I argue, that a mobility regime uh, is, is, is practiced and enforced that effectively produces the effect of you being from a particular country and you entering another country. This is something I think a lot of us take for granted. We get used to applying for visas and passports, but this, I would argue, is actually a very peculiar configuration of space. It is not permanent. Uh, the world didn't used to work in this way, but it is, it is something we are kind of used to now. What is a little bit curious about the case of Taiwan and China is that there's some ambiguity about what country each is. And when tourists come from China to Taiwan, uh, there's a presumption that many of the Chinese tourists have is that they're entering part of China, yet they're submitting to very different sorts of border crossing restrictions. Uh, the same is true, of course, if Taiwanese travel to China. So that would be one example, the, the border crossing itself. Uh, another sort of example of how tourism performs and transforms state territory is that often uh, iconic sites, for example, the Eiffel Tower in France, uh, the Great Wall of China, uh, places uh, that are really popular with tourists that go into tour, tour guides, uh, tour books uh, that all tour groups have to go to, they become sort of synonymous with the nation itself. Uh, tourism is a way for uh, national cultural authority, uh, ministry or department or whatever, to perform not only on the tourist's behalf, but also on their own, their own people's behalf, what the cultural essence of that country is. And that has uh, obviously, I think, uh, pretty pretty deep political implications. So those are right. all, those are several examples, and and I would I would add another one, which is that um, tourism is often, especially in the case of China, used to pursue political projects. Uh, it, it can be used to uh, steer resources in certain ways, uh, and 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 not in other ways. Uh, and so th these are, I think, yet other ways that tourism can be used as a territorial project to pursue certain sorts of state interests. Right. And then especially you mentioned that the tourism is uh, in addition to, you know, this kind of leisure or entertainment or this kind of industry for economic sector. But actually, there is a political uh, kind of layer there, either as uh, technology to regulate and also to kind of mediate a mobility regime. And then, as you mentioned, in the case of Taiwan and China, it's very interesting to think about border and exactly how that border is being constructed and understood in many different ways, as we will uh, unpack more later in our interview. And uh, now that we are talking about territory, and uh, in your chapter, it's uh, uh, specific chapter one, you talk about Taiwan as an exceptional territory, and especially thinking about the different social historical context and also cultural formation and also transformation uh, in this island. So can you tell us a little bit more about Taiwan and why Taiwan as an exceptional territory? Sure. So Taiwan has uh, about 24 million people, about as much as Australia. It's one of the world's, I think now, one of the world's 20th largest economies. It's got a president, a military, um, uh, schools, education system, and so on. It, it functions uh, as a country uh, by almost any contemporary definition of that word. However, it only has official diplomatic relations with a dozen or so countries at this point. 
And under the, uh, the rubric uh, of a state apparatus that didn't arrive in Taiwan until 1945, uh, the Republic of China. So I begin this chapter, uh, to uh, chapter one of the book after the introduction, to give some understanding of the very unusual characteristics of Taiwan that frame all of the tourism uh, coming from China and, and, and actually really everyday life in Taiwan uh, for Taiwanese and others uh, to, to make sense of that. So this chapter begins actually with the stories of not Chinese tourists, but of frustrated Taiwanese travelers, including professors and students who are trying to visit the United Nations headquarters in Geneva, and they're turned away. They're told that they, they can't even just take a casual visit of the United Nations uh, space uh, because they don't come from a country or they don't have IDs from countries that are members of the UN. Uh, this is really striking that 23, 24 million people live under such a, uh, such a, a regime where they're denied representation, visibility, and even access to an international body that uh, purports to have a universal remit. So I, I begin with, with this, uh, this sort of account uh, to set the stage for Taiwan's many, many layers of, um, of colonial occupation uh, and its current sort of ambiguous or liminal status as a state without universally recognized statehood. So to back up just a little bit and explain how that happened, uh, I, I, go, I go all the way back to Taiwan's indigenous uh, history, uh, Taiwan having been settled for thousands of years and uh, lived in for thousands of years by indigenous Austronesians who still live here. Uh, and they they uh, occupied the whole of the, the island and the archipelago. Uh, then in the 1600s, a co-colonization of Taiwan began uh, under first Portuguese, but primarily Dutch, and then Han Chinese settlers from uh, Fujian, from Southeast China in sort of a co-colonial scenario. And here I borrow from historians such as Tony Andrade uh, and others. Uh, finally, uh, the, the Dutch were removed. Taiwan was more vigorously settled by Han settlers, uh, mostly from Fujian, uh, under the sort of reticent or ambivalent uh, watch of the, the Qing uh, Empire, uh, a conquest dynasty uh, that took most of China, uh, uh, but originated in what's now Manchuria. Uh, before finally handing Taiwan to Japan in 1895 for what became 50 years of a very vigorous colonization by Japan uh, until 1945, uh, when Japan lost a war with uh, the U.S. Uh, and the Allies and handed over Taiwan uh, as the U.S. sort of stood by uh, to the Republic of China, which was then the state apparatus in control of the rest of China, but locked in a uh, civil war with the Chinese Communist Party, which they eventually lost before fully retreating to Taiwan and instituting uh, the world's longest uh, period of martial law from 1949 to 1987 uh, in Taiwan, uh, and also a very uh, thorough project of cynicization. Taiwan, having been colonized for 50 years by Japan, uh, had, had uh, many sort of Japanized features but also a multilingual, multicultural milieu to some extent of uh, Fujianese, uh, of indigenous peoples, of at that point Japanese settlers, that was then quite forcibly re-educated as Chinese. Uh, Taiwan was a part of China. Taiwan need, Taiwanese people needed to speak the official language of China, uh, Mandarin. Uh, Taiwan was not important in and of itself, except as an appendage or a stepping stone for 
the Nationalist Party to eventually retake China, which never happened. Uh, and for several decades, the Republic of China in Taiwan represented China on the world stage, including the United Nations uh, and, and, and elsewhere, until the 1970s, when recognition shifted to China uh, for, for um, uh, Beijing took the seat in the UN and so on. And Taiwan's period of isolation, international isolation, really, really stepped up in earnest. Yet at the same time, as this chapter makes clear, Taiwan also underwent uh, many waves of social movements and democratization that eventually led to the kind of plural, democratic, uh, increasingly uh, multicultural uh, uh, place with a, a kind of a more civic sense of nationhood that, that it is today, uh, a, a place that is uh, democratic, uh, self-administered, de facto independent, yet not recognized as such formally by most of the world. But, but it produces kind of a, already a sort of surreal or ambiguous staging of nationality, kind of a transitional uh, uh, nationalism uh, that still characterizes Taiwan, uh, especially during the period of the book, but, but even today. Right. Thank you for this great overview about the history of Taiwan, especially from the settled colonial society, the serial colonization, later on in Taiwan, the position of Taiwan in co-war structure, and also cross-strait antagonism, and also to the contemporary development of Taiwan. So uh, with this different moments and transition in the historical, cultural, and political landscape, so now uh, to think about tourism in all of this transition. And earlier, uh, we mentioned this cross-strait antagonism. And uh, so how does, uh, when or how and why did the cross-strait tourism start and continue uh, from Taiwan to China and China to Taiwan? Sure. So during the Cold War, when the Nationalist Party uh, was was locked in a, a conflict, uh, kind of a low-level military, but mostly an international diplomatic conflict with um, the Communist Party in China, travel between Taiwan and China was was blocked. There were some some you know interesting incidents of people swimming or flying across, but for the whole, for several decades, there was there was almost no uh, no crossing between both sides until 1987, when uh, martial law was formally lifted in Taiwan, and uh, Taiwanese people were permitted to go on, well, Taiwan-based people, you know, often, often the, the uh, people who had fled China in the 1940s, but also Taiwan-born people as well, uh, were permitted to visit China for family visits, uh, maybe medical visits, maybe some educational exchanges. Uh, and likewise, people from China were admitted uh, into Taiwan also on these sort of limited visits. Uh, and it was initially it, it provoked some very, very interesting reflection. There, there were a lot of separated families that were delighted to see each other. But there was also a lot of um, a lot of senses of dislocation and alienation and confusion. Uh, some of the early reports of, of Taiwanese going to China and vice versa. People expected to see a sense of kinship, to feel a sense of, re, of reunion, of cultural affinity, or so on. And what was what was instead experienced by many of the people who wrote about this was a sense of actually how different the the, the two sides were. Uh, at the same time, though, there there was uh, a lot of hope and optimism, and, and increasing uh, increasing uh, flows on both sides uh, through through the 90s. 
uh, still, though, there are a lot of political disagreements. And, and by 2000, um, Taiwan elected a new president uh, from the Democratic Progressive Party, which had its root in social movements, which had supported democracy and self-determination for Taiwan. And at this point, uh, China effectively froze most formal contacts with, uh, with, with Taiwan's government or quasi-government bodies and made it a little bit difficult to travel uh, into Taiwan. Uh, I should also point out that throughout this period, all travel from Taiwan to China had to go through a third place, typically Hong Kong or Macau or somewhere else because there weren't direct flights. However, throughout this time, even through the 2000s, even with a very pro-self-determination president in the form of Chen Shui-bian, Taiwan was busy investing a lot of money into China. Uh, so, many, so many factories uh, and so much of China's industrialization and capitalist transformation was actually driven by Taiwanese industry, Taiwanese business people, as a number of, of, of scholars have made very clear. Uh, so there, that was another mode of contact. Taiwan at this time started getting very interested in bringing more tourists into, into Taiwan. Uh, the biggest group, uh, biggest segment for many years had been from Japan. It's close. You know, there's a, there's a colonial history. Uh, and Japanese people have been, have been traveling here for many decades. But Taiwan under Chen Shui-bian uh, and, and the tourism industry saw a great potential for the tourism industry to be boosted by opening up uh, more, more, more assertively for Chinese travelers. Linguistically, it's fairly easy for Chinese travelers to get around here. Uh, there's a lot of business ties that could be built, and there seemed to be money to be made. And so the Chen Shui-bian administration started setting the ground to have direct flights uh, to start welcoming group tours. However, the China side rebuffed this. They, they, they refused to open this up. Uh, according to my informants, and I interviewed uh, quite a few uh, travel uh, and tourism and hotel association uh, trade association leaders, uh, they said that the China side didn't want to open this up because they didn't want to give any credit to the Chen Shui-bian administration. Uh, instead, the China side wanted to uh, subvert that party in the hopes of reelecting the Chinese Nationalist Party, previously their Cold War enemy, but now sort of their, their business partner in a way, and also their partners perhaps in an eventual uh, political resolution that would recognize Taiwan and China as the same country. Uh, and, or belonging to the same country uh, and in the view of Beijing, uh, ultimately uh, subject to their sovereignty. And this is uh, basically what happened in 2008 when the KMT, the Chinese Nationalist Party, returned to the presidential office uh, under President Ma ying who uh, had put uh, as the centerpiece of his campaign and of his policy, he put uh, a China-focused economic platform at the center of everything and a new kind of cross-strait arrangement uh, called the 1992 consensus that was based on, uh, and it was a reconstructed result of a conversation between Chinese Nationalist Party and Chinese Communist Party uh, quasi-state officials in 1992 that didn't actually result in any written documents, but later both sides sort of agreed that they came to something they called the 1992 consensus that uh, as far as the, the Taiwan KMT was concerned meant uh, one China, each with its own interpretation. The China side never acknowledged anything about different interpretations. It was simply one China. 
And this One China is the One China of my book title. Uh, the One China, as understood by Beijing, is again very different than was understood by the Taiwan uh, uh, KMT. And, and again, the KMT, to be clear, uh, means Chinese Nationalist Party, which is uh, was for many years the the party state uh, hegemon and dictator in Taiwan. So once Mainzhou was elected in 2008. Uh, very quickly, uh, as kind of a reward for his election uh, and his pro pro China policies, the floodgates to tourism opened up, and Taiwan's received its very first group tours from Fujian and then from elsewhere in China, uh, the the Beijing, uh, Shanghai, and Guangzhou and Shenzhen were the first to send group tours to Taiwan, and this is this is very typical. Uh, not just Taiwan, but Europe and the U.S. When group tours opened up to these places, uh, it started from these these wealthier uh, so-called first-tier cities, uh, and then gradually more and more uh, places could send group tours, and then eventually independent tourists could also enter Taiwan as well. So this chapter describes this incredibly rapid growth, how how tourism went from from basically zero to millions per year, how cross-strait fl flights uh, started opening up, that you could now fly both Taiwanese and China Airlines uh, directly from China to Taiwan, which, which didn't happen before, except on, on very limited charter flights. Uh, and it also talks about the very unusual uh, devices that facilitated this, because China and Taiwan formally don't really recognize each other as different countries. They don't use passports and visas to facilitate travel, they instead use entry and exit permits and mobility permits. And this gets around the question of performing uh, each other as a different state because they're not using passports and visas. Uh, something very strange happened during this process as well because the numbers of tourists grew so quickly and there were all kinds of improvisations being made on the Taiwan side to kind of vet the um, whether these tourists should enter actually a lot of the review of the documents wasn't done by the usual immigration authorities in Taiwan, but by the tourism industry itself, which has its own sorts of uh, financial and political interests. And as it happens, uh, I uncovered that the tourism industry often had very deep uh, personal uh, and, and um, business ties as well to the KMT, leading to some very interesting conflicts of interest. So, so there's a whole lot of a whole lot at stake uh, in this travel. And as the millions of tourists started flooding into Taiwan, the tourism industry actually, even though it wanted this and cheerled for this, they found themselves actually ill-equipped and unprepared for for such a rapid growth. Um, and many, many tourism uh, industry players actually complained to me that uh, it opened too quick or that most of the money they made actually was funneled back to uh, the China side or to Hong Kong, where there was some intermediary business happening. Uh, they complained of rapid cartelization, that uh, many of the hotels, many of the shops that tourists were going to were owned by just a few corporate players, uh, and that the money wasn't distributing uh, as widely as, as they had hoped or as would be appreciated by people in Taiwan. Uh, and this, this I found to generally be felt uh, throughout Taiwan. Um, it produced some antagonism uh, as well. Uh, and, and also some, perhaps some, some uh, drops in other sorts of tourism from other countries uh, as, as places got, uh, it shifted their orientation really towards Chinese mass tourism quite quickly. Mm. And especially you mentioned this uh, transition and 
rapid, if not dramatic, transition from zero to millions. And uh, so earlier uh, from those uh, when it was zero, you know, cannot travel across the strait. As you mentioned, there are some people swim, try to swim or fly across the strait. And uh, actually earlier, back um, last year, um, I interviewed Andrew Morris about his book, uh, that is Defectors from PRC to Taiwan, 1960s, 1989. The anti-communist righteous warrior is about the people um, or uh, the pilots from China flying to uh, Taiwan. And for the audience, if you're interested to know more about this uh, flight to Taiwan, uh, we have Epsil back in uh, May 2022 in this channel as well. So... With attempt for swim or fly, and now we see uh, in 2012, around that time, the millions of tourists from China. And you also mentioned like, the different uh, political implication other than economic consideration about this regulated and also even highly political influence mobility within and across Taiwan and China. So uh, with that, now, um, where um, do these uh, Chinese tourists uh, visit in Taiwan? So what are those sites that they are uh, interested in visiting or are popular for them? And how this site uh, is being presented to these uh, tourists, and particularly these different tourist sites in Taiwan present, translate, or perform Taiwan as the so-called Chinese tourist site? Sure. Well, first, uh, I also want to just append what I said uh, very briefly about the political stakes of the opening of tourism to note that in 2008, uh, as tourism opened, both sides, uh, both Beijing and, and Taipei, spoke about the tourism uh, as, as a harbinger of a larger shift in the relations, uh, that it would somehow produce yeah, reconciliation or lead to the, the peaceful development of both sides. Uh, and it was, it was industry as well as political offices that made these sorts of claims. And many scholars as well seem to, to have this notion that tourism was a harbinger, but also maybe a productive of uh, transformation that would lead to greater understanding uh, or maybe in, in, the, in the, the minds or policy of Chinese party state policymakers, even uh, what they call unification uh, or what some in Taiwan might instead call annexation. So tourism uh, was, was uh, implicitly and even explicitly part of that project uh, if, if, if one reads that rhetoric. Uh, how, how was that um, pursued on the ground and what were some of the sites the tourists went to? Uh, so there are absolutely must-see must sites in Taiwan for Chinese or really any sorts of tourists, uh, some of which are very explicit about their Chineseness, uh, or at least where their materials came from. Uh, the, the most Chinese site in all of Taiwan would be uh, the National Palace Museum, uh, Gugong, uh, which contains hundreds, thousands of years of uh, artifacts of bronzes, of jades, of uh, brush paintings, and, and so on, that were in the collection of the uh, emperors in the Forbidden City in Beijing, and that were packed up in crates during the Civil War, shipped to Taipei, and are now on display. Uh, and uh, most Chinese tourists 
uh, will go visit this. And, and uh, really any tourist to Taiwan who's not seen it should go because it's, it's one of the world's greatest museums. This would be one, uh, one, one site. Other sorts of sites that are very interesting uh, for Chinese tourists would include the Sun Yat-sen Memorial Hall, a memorial hall dedicated to the, uh, the revolutionary who overthrew, helped to drove an overthrow of the Qing dynasty in China, established the Republic of China, and is recognized as sort of the father of the nation by both the People's Republic of China, the PRC, and the ROC. Uh, a somewhat more contentious character and site that some tourists came to, but others were warned about, uh, the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall in what is now renamed uh, Liberty Square in Taipei would be another site that some independent tourists came to, but group, group tours were a bit cagey about visiting. Something that almost all tourists look forward to, group or independent, and that is like written about in you know, every guidebook uh, in, in China would be night markets. Taiwan is really famous for its food in China. Uh, the Sulian night market would, would be one place that everyone seemed to know about. Uh, and in fact, became so popular with Chinese tourists that Taiwanese tourists, Taiwanese people started avoiding it. They found it, they found it to be overrun. Uh, other, other places like that that uh, became uh, basically uh, more, more Chinese than Taiwanese, at least in terms of who was there on the ground, leading to some, some sort of confusing confusing juxtapositions of nationality would be places like Sun Moon Lake. This is uh, uh, what was a lake and actually the ancestral land of the, the Zhou people in central Taiwan. It was expanded to a reservoir during the Japanese colonial era uh, and is, is uh, a, a beautiful site, uh, a lake uh, that one can take boats around in the center of Taiwan. It's, it's dotted with, with hotels, with now, uh, especially when Chinese tourists are there, a lot of commission shops selling putatively indigenous things. Uh, it is also featured on the passport, the Taiwan province passport page of the Chinese passport. Um, so the, 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 the PRC passport itself claims Taiwan uh, uh, materially through this by representing this, this lake. Uh, another site that Chinese people were keen on going to would be Ali Shan, uh, uh, not the largest, but one of the most scenic mountain ranges in, in Taiwan. Uh, it had been a forestry uh, uh, site also uh, during the J Japanese period. Other sites, uh, Kanding, the, the beach in the south, uh, Taiwan's probably you know nicest beach area, at least when it's not uh, uh, particularly crowded. Uh, there are a number of Taiwanese people that said to me things like, I don't go to Kanding anymore. If I wanted to go to China, I would just go to China. Uh, this, is, this is them being somewhat snarky about how, how uh, Taiwan was transformed during this period. Some other sites I cover uh, include uh, really some, some unusual outliers. So sites that only some more intrepid independent tourists went to, such as Gulan, a Amis indigenous town that has become a very kind of hybrid or heterogeneous space uh, full of international surfers, artists, uh, and, and, uh, and otherwise on the southeast coast in Taidong. Some independent tourists went there and described a very different sort of Taiwan. Um, it, the, there's, the, it's not quite as, um, uh, it's, it's not performed as Chinese in the way that the National Palace Museum is. And it's also not performed as Taiwanese uh, in, in the sort of uh, um, like Hoklo, Bunsung sense of um, uh, a kind of a Taiwanese culture you would find in the South, like in Tainan. Uh, it's got a, a more indigenous and mixed flavor. 
And so this chapter, uh, chapter three, talks about Taiwan uh, by introducing these sites, by pouring the readers through these sites. It talks about Taiwan as a sort of tourist heterotopia. It's a place where there's a whole bunch of different sorts of nationalisms, cultures, uh, uh, inverting each other, subverting each other, overlapping with each other, and allowing both tourists and residents alike to, to some sense, pick and choose, but also to be confronted with uh, a, a country that seems to be multiple countries at the same time. Uh, and here I borrow from the speculative fiction author China Mievel's wonderful uh, detective novel, The City in the City, which posits a, a fantastical place where there's two cities in the same space, but two countries that occupy the same space and where the citizens of each side are trained to see and unsee the other. And of course, there's, there's problems. You know, the borders are still crossed. There are border perforating catastrophes, bus crashes and the like that throw this careful seeing and unseeing into disarray. Uh, and, and, and one example of this would be what happens at also a must-see tourist site, uh, not just a tourist site, but a site that became actually a place to stage Taiwan's modernity, and that would be the Taipei 101 skyscraper, which was for some years in the, in the mid-2000s, the largest, the tallest skyscraper in the whole world. And it's, it's a, a tall skyscraper. It's an office building that also has a mall attached downstairs. And it was a place that almost all Chinese tourists would go to. And so during the research period, uh, like much of the world, it was a place that the uh, dissident, the banned religious group, banned in China group, the Falun Gong group would go and demonstrate at. They would sit there and meditate and hold posters denouncing the Communist Party, inviting the visitors to um, to. Uh, step down from the Communist Party and so on and talk about atrocities that they claim they suffered. Uh, so they would stage demonstrations there every day, as well as at the National Palace Museum. However, very wild things started happening in these places. A pro-PRC, pro-China nationalist group called the Aiguo Tong Xin Hui, the uh, Patriot Association, uh, which was composed of some actually formerly Chinese nationals, some retired ROC military people as well, would go and counter-protest against the Falun Gong. They would wave Chinese PRC flags as well as ROC flags uh, and uh, ham it up for the cameras of Chinese tourists. Then, actually, another group entered the fray, the so-called Taiwan Independence Revolutionary Army of, of strong, strongly identified Taiwanese nationalists. So who would go and counter demonstrate against the Patriotism Association? And if you're starting to lose track of all these names, uh, don't worry. Uh, most visitors, tourists or local, had no idea what was going on. Falun Gong would be playing uh, their, their meditation music. The, uh, the Patriotism Association was playing uh, Chinese communist anthems. Taiwanese Independence Revolutionary Army was playing their own sorts of, of, um, of makeshift martial anthems, producing this sense of ambiguous sovereignty, the sense of multiple multiple nations coexisting in the same space, you know, really causing a racket and also causing everyone to kind of feel like they didn't know where they were and who was who. And I treat this as, as kind of a wonderful metaphor for the broader transformations that the tourism wrought on Taiwan and really what was, what was up for grabs. And it is in fact, that scene that is the cover of the book. Uh, these, these different groups counter protesting in front of this iconic skyscraper uh, that, that is 
uh, itself emblematic of a certain kind of Taiwanese aspiration uh, on the world stage. Yeah, thank you for this um, uh, the list of the popular uh, sites visited by the Chinese tourists. And then, um, so especially unpacking these sites as a contested site, for for example, the political protest you mentioned, and also in the same space, there are multiple protests and uh, sometimes protesting against each other, uh, as well as the site um, that have different layers. It's not just the Han Chinese majority or the population, but also there will be indigenous uh, history and experience uh, in different layers or different history, different moments uh, in the same space as well. So uh, with these uh, popular uh, sites that Chinese tourists visit, uh, you yourself is actually visiting a lot of the, these sites as well. And you, in your book, especially chapter four, you mentioned that you are a part of the uh, Chinese uh, group tour around Taiwan. And can you tell us about your experience and also your thoughts, especially your observation of the tour guide? Yeah. So in 2014, uh, I, I went to Shanghai. I spent a month or two there researching uh, essentially how Chinese tourists prepare uh, to go to Taiwan, uh, how they access information and how they book how they book travel. And of course, part of this would be to, to really experience how Taiwan was was uh, sold and performed uh, for Taiwan for Chinese tourists. I had to myself go and and book a tour. Uh, and join them and and fly from Shanghai into Taiwan. And having been a tour guide, I had some understanding of of how this industry worked. But as a as a U.S. national who does not look Chinese, uh, I I was presented with some interesting barriers to doing this. I, I walked into several different uh, travel agencies. I was turned down by a few. Told I couldn't go unless I had a Chinese spouse, or even then I, I couldn't go. They couldn't explain why they had this rule. And then I walked into a different outlet of more or less the same company. And they said, sure, you know, we're happy to take your money. Uh, you can go next week. Uh, and so, so I paid about 900 US dollars uh, for this very, very basic eight-day group tour of Taiwan. Uh, and, and part of why it was, it was so cheap, as I learned, was we had a whole lot of shopping to do. And this is kind of how... Chinese tours work within China, but also uh, going to other countries, that often tours are sold at a loss on flights and hotels and food. And that money is really made by uh, steering the tourists into commission shops, some of which are labeled on the itinerary, but a lot of which are called museums or the like. Uh, and so, so I, I, I kind of knew what I was getting into. Uh, what I wasn't prepared for was how assiduously the tour guide, especially on the tour bus, when we were kind of what you might call the backstage of the tour, was performing himself as a Chinese co-national and also uh, Taiwan really as a, as a part of China uh, that just didn't want to be governed too strictly, but, but that more or less was a part of China and couldn't wait to unify under maybe somewhat more fortuitous circumstances. So... I flew uh, with, I, I met my fellow tourists. Uh, it was a, a group from uh, Jiangsu uh, near Shanghai and then a family from Shanghai. Uh, I met them in the airport at, at Pudong. Uh, we all flew together. I sat next to uh, uh, the construction worker who eventually became my roommate for the following eight days. 
we landed in Taiwan, uh, they, we all lined up together in the, the same line for non-Republic of China nationals. So we had different ways of entering. I entered using my US passport on, I think at that time I had a resident visa. They entered using their, their entry exit permits. So I got to listen as they discussed why they were using these permits versus visas and so on. It was actually the child of the Shanghai family that was like, oh, why do we even need this, this, uh, this, this, Qianzheng, this, this visa, which it wasn't a visa anyway. So getting to kind of witness how the tourists spoke about these visas, these entry permits themselves as, as productive or not of a different sense of, of nationality uh, or territory was fascinating. Uh, we were then picked up by the tour guide who was a retired military officer from Tainan, uh, a, born and raised in, in, in Taiwan, uh, spoke perfect uh, Hoplo Taiwanese, uh, and then took us to the bus where he uh, essentially introduced himself uh, as, as a fellow Chinese uh, uh, citizen. He he spoke about um, how our premier, Wen Jiabao, who at that time was the premier of the PRC, wanted to visit Taiwan and particularly these two sites, the uh, Zhongtai uh, Monastery, uh, it's a, a, a Buddhist mega temple and, and one other site, and he couldn't do it due to political reasons, so we're going to do it on his behalf. Uh, this, was, this was really quite extraordinary. And so we went and we did that, and we learned at that site how uh, both people on both sides of the strait were from the same source. Uh, there were various puns used to make that point. Uh, uh, the, the, the word for bronze and the word for uh, unity are the same was used to, to kind of play on, on the bronze that we saw inscribed uh, by, uh, the, by Chinese Buddhists at this Taiwanese site and so on. We circled the country. We stayed in, uh, frankly, pretty lousy hotels, usually on the outskirts of places we were promised we would stay in. Uh, we were told we would stay in Kunding, this beach resort town, but we actually stayed uh, a half hour away. Uh, the same was true in Taidong. Uh, we were fed pretty lousy food. The tourists wondered what was up. They were, they were told food in Taiwan was so good, but instead we were served this kind of mass market slop. Um, we were steered clear of most sites that would be politically sensitive in the sense of talking about uh, atrocities perpetrated by the KMT within Taiwan. Uh, I asked the tour guide why we didn't, for example, talk about the 228 incident, which was uh, a massacre of, of, of many thousands of Taiwanese. Uh, also, some mainlanders uh, suffered as well during this time. Um, and, and he said he didn't want to talk about that because it was people from China that, that did this and he didn't want to make the guests uncomfortable. Uh, what he did very comfortably do uh, for him uh, was say a lot of very anti-Japanese things throughout the tour. Uh, he, when we went to Alishan, he spoke about uh, how Japan's uh, administration took a lot of timber. Uh, he used a lot of uh, anti-Japanese slurs, in fact. Uh, it, he told me that he did this. and. I, I, to sort of cater to them, uh, cater to what he thought the tourists liked, and, and that that seemed to actually be be effective. He also, throughout the tour, uh, would never speak about Taiwan and China as as different countries. Uh, he would talk about Taiwan, uh, you know, whether as a province or, or or not. He he was extremely careful with his language, and he also adjusted his Mandarin to use PRC diction. Uh, he didn't talk about indigenous people in Taiwan as much as he talked about minority ethnic groups, which is the, the parlance uh, and, in fact, the official ethnic classification scheme of China. 
uh, actually under which Taiwan's indigenous people are collapsed into a single group called High Mountain People. Uh, this is this is astonishing uh, that the guide uh, uh, not only knew so much about how how that was done in China, but but would adjust his language throughout the tour uh, to to facilitate that. Uh, he he also uh, you know like like any other tour guide he he took us to many many commission shops, uh, many of which played up. Um, the Chineseness of, of of the products they were selling. Uh, we went to a tea shop that actually had a photos of Maingio on the boxes of the extremely overpriced tea, uh, and and the tourists found this amusing. Uh, a lot of them saw right through a lot of the the games that were being played. Uh, I think most astonishingly, and this is something that uh, I wouldn't have known had I joined the tour, and really almost no one I think in Taiwan was aware of. Uh, who wasn't involved uh, in the industry, we were taken to a jade store in Hualien that was actually owned and operated by the KMT or a, a kind of a, a business under its umbrella uh, that claimed that the more jade we bought, the faster Taiwan and Yuna would, the faster Taiwan and China would unify. They, they were using this sort of political sentiment to boost uh, their own economic fortune. Uh, this is this is this is this was pretty amazing. Um, the the tourists again didn't really buy that. Um, they 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 were they were uh, amused uh, by by this effort, but they certainly did shop uh, along the way. Uh, the the tourists complained to me. They 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 said, and this was kind of consonant with a, a lot of independent tourists I spoke with as well. They. They liked the people they interacted with. They were generally disappointed by the sights and certainly the food. They found that Sun Moon Lake uh, wasn't as beautiful as their West Lake in Hangzhou, that Alishan wasn't as beautiful as Huangshan in Anhui, these, these famous sites in China. But they, they generally appreciated the people. Uh, and they thought that maybe this is because uh, the Taiwanese people were so polite and warm, maybe because they would uh, not suffered certain things that people in China had suffered, be that the Cultural Revolution or other sorts of really wrenching social transformations. Um, they, they were surprised by how shabby they found uh, Taiwan's urban spaces, even in Taipei, to be compared to their first tier cities um, or even, even a place like Hangzhou. Uh, but on the whole, they had generally a good time. Uh, what, what I found by joining this tour was that uh, there was a really... Um, an incredible amount of stage management that went into performing Taiwan as a part of China to keep that tour smoothly functioning and to keep the money flowing. Yet it was done without the direct hand of uh, any sort of um, travel agency association or the Taiwan government. That There was no script that this tour guide really had to follow, but that he chose to, to uh, perform Taiwan in this way to basically keep his job going to keep to keep uh, the tourists he thought happy uh, to keep the tourists coming and and that a lot of this was basically done um, uh, improvisationally but in a, in a very practiced in a very skilled kind of way uh, this was maybe kind of kind of an extreme example uh, I, I didn't hear you know other tour guides when I was doing more casual observations talking and such for example anti-japanese ways uh, but that in general, uh, tour guides would would accommodate uh, tourists in a way so as not to make them uncomfortable, uh, while you know roughly staying compatible with their own kind of uh, ideological orientation. You know, there are many other tour guides who weren't quite as um, pro PRC 
uh, or or pro pro KMT uh, is is my own, but that on the whole, for group tourists, Taiwan was performed uh, as as a part of China in a way that might be uh, you know uh, at minimum uncomfortable, at maximum shocking, really for uh, for many Taiwanese people. What a extraordinary experience you had. <laughs> And uh, especially in terms of the uh, group tour and how it was uh, relatively highly controlled and also the carefully framed narrative of Taiwan as uh, part of the uh, Chinese territory as how it was presented by the uh, uh, tour guide. And also this kind of, uh, as you mentioned, this effort of stage management and as if this kind of the uh, kind of theater as if uh, to perform Taiwan as part of uh, China. And so this is the group tour. But uh, uh, in Chapter 5, you also take a look at those uh, tourists that are actually not in the group. They are independent tourists coming from China to visit Taiwan. So uh, can you tell us a little bit more about those independent Chinese tourists and then how they, um, what's their experience look like? And then uh, especially how their experience shape or reshape their identity and understanding as Chinese subjects? Yeah, that's right. So I, I begin chapter five the varieties of independent tourist experience with the account of Han Han, who at that time was China's most famous blogger. Uh, he visited Taiwan in, in 2012, uh, right as I was is beginning field work. And he wrote about uh, what a wonderful time he had in Taiwan, uh, uh, that Taiwanese people were profoundly generous. Uh, he wrote about how surprised uh, he was that he, for example, lost his phone in the taxi and the taxi driver tracked him down at the hotel and gave it back to him, that he uh, he didn't have. He needed a new pair of glasses. He broke his glasses, and he went to a shop to make some new glasses. And it would take them a couple of days to make the whole set, so they gave him a, a free one to hold on to. And he he wrote that this is this would never happen in China. He in fact started getting nervous. He was about to get attacked. Uh, he, he'd be robbed because it were something like that in China to happen. Uh, it, it's too good to be true. It'd be a scam. And he he thinks that that Taiwanese people are so nice, so polite because they didn't suffer the cultural revolution. But more than that, it's because they're actually more Chinese. It's this niceness, this politeness, this, this civilized quality is, is actually because they're quintessentially Chinese in a way that Chinese people no, no longer are. And he thanks Taiwan for preserving Chinese civilization. Uh, th this is a, you know, a very, a very partial kind of interpretation, a very, a very interesting and paradigmatic one that many tourists I interview share. They, they appreciate so much about uh, Taiwanese uh, etiquette uh, and they, they attribute it to it, Taiwan being more Chinese than China. Uh, many of them aren't aware, for example, that Taiwan had 50 years of Japanese colonization and, and that that may have uh, also affected the way Taiwanese people behave or the way its urban spaces are laid out. Uh, I then contrast Han Han's account with uh, someone I call Li Ping, a, a art student I met in Shanghai before her trip to Taiwan. Uh, who discovered, and, and she tells me this by chatting with me on WeChat, uh, China's dominant social media app, she, she goes uh, on, I don't know, day two to Taiwan's uh, landmark bookstore, Esli Tsengpin, uh, and she hears a talk by a professor from Hong Kong about the dissident artist Ai Weiwei. And while she's there, she scans the bookshelves and she notices uh, several volumes about the massacre at Tiananmen Square 
1989. Uh, so these are these are subjects of um, forbidden knowledge in China that she uncovers in Taiwan. Uh, so these these are very different sorts of experiences in, in, in Taiwan. And I proceed in this chapter to interview dozens of Chinese tourists who I'd met, whether uh, through uh, online channels, through introductions from friends who, for example, hosted them in their Airbnbs, uh, or people I just chatted up while uh, hanging out uh, at tourist sites across Taiwan. And I get a, you know, a real a real sense of a, a huge range. You know, some some people come to Taiwan and they and they experienced it as um, just like a, a nice, gentle place to hang out. A place they described as Xiao Qingxin, uh, which is extremely hard to translate, but it's kind of cute and fresh and and easygoing. Some people who treated Taiwan kind of the way Americans treat Hawaii, with a beautiful coastline, uh, with some nice places to stay, some good food, a place to chill out, to reconnect with nature or something. Uh, other people had a more kind of cultural vision in mind or came here on business, but you know, mixed that with leisure. Uh, other people uh, I interview by, by uh, approaching kind of cold, cold calling people in the airport we're just here to visit family members because Taiwan, uh, as Sarah Friedman has written about in her book, Exceptional States, uh, has received many, many thousands uh, of marriage migrants uh, from China, uh, mostly women uh, who married Taiwanese men and their families wanted to come visit them. And uh, many of them came on, on sorts of uh, tourist, tourist uh, permits. So I interview them and, you know, they're not really too concerned with Taiwan as Taiwan. They just came here to see to see their family. Um, so. This book, uh, so this chapter examines the varieties of this uh, and, and, and gets, it, it gets the sense really that there's as many Taiwans uh, as there are uh, eyes to see them through. Uh, and and it, it shows just how, how diverse that is. And, and it's, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't um, have, I think there's a structural difference here between these independent tourists and, and group uh, tourists, the independent tourists, some of them really see, again, Taiwan through this very Chinese lens, as did Han Han. Uh, some tourists saw Taiwan as, yeah, very, very different. Uh, and, and some of them even appreciated uh, and, and wanted Taiwan and China to remain separately governed, but hoped or uh, anticipated that eventually uh, there would be a political unification and that they thought that would be in the interests of both sides. Uh, whereas others hoped that Taiwan just, you know, continued going its own way, uh, and and they were happy to have the chance to to witness that. So this book doesn't, this chapter doesn't make as strong of a of a conclusion. It's it's more ambiguous, open ended, and shows just how uh, how how much Taiwan serves as a, a place for Chinese people to rethink who they are, uh, who Taiwan is, uh, and uh, and what and what these cultures and territories mean. Uh, in their own terms, but also for the world uh, in, in productive and in, in sometimes hopeful ways. Right. With this uh, diverse uh, experience for the independent Chinese tourists, uh, we see that uh, they have different experience and different uh, reflection, uh, if you will, about Taiwan and also about themselves as Chinese subject as well. So, um, so now we talk about the group tourism and also the independent uh, tourist. And uh, in uh, your chapter, uh, chapter six specifically, uh, you talk about when Chinese tourism became an issue and in some degree a political issue. And this is actually a very uh, relatively recent uh, 
uh, issue as well. And this is about Taiwan and also Hong Kong. So can you tell us a little bit more about the Chinese tourism as an point of contention in Taiwan, especially the sunflower movement, but also in Hong Kong and also the umbrella movement. So what's the uh, the two movement, they approach the tourism, whether it is a point of contention or not. So by 2014, which was uh, the major period of my fieldwork, uh, the time I did that group tour, was also uh, a major turning point for Taiwan's domestic politics uh, and also its relationship with China. Uh, and this is because under President Ma ying and the KMT, Taiwan's economic eggs had mostly been placed in the China basket. Uh, under Ma, there had been a series of bills to produce more economic integration uh, with China, and, and this was all under the rhetorical umbrella of the One China policy. Uh, and this was proving increasingly unpopular in Taiwan. Ma's, Ma's popularity went down as low as 9% in one poll. Uh, and this uh, was in large part not just due to you know, how people felt culturally or politically about Taiwan vis-a-vis -vis China, but also a sense that they weren't getting the economic benefits they were promised, whether from tourism or otherwise. Uh, and the, the, the match that sparked a gigantic uh, explosion of popular discontent about his policies and really redirected uh, Taiwan's fate uh, was, was actually... Uh, uh, related to tourism uh, in the form of a, a bill called the Services Trade Act, which would have liberalized all sorts of investment between Taiwan and China in sensitive sectors, including publishing, uh, medicine, uh, but as well as tourism, which was not a huge topic of discontent in Taiwan in itself. People complained about Chinese tourists uh, taking up space, uh, making messes in places, uh, this sorts of complaints was similar enough to some complaints that were happening uh, from people in Hong Kong, but not with the same kind of uh, not not quite as as angry. Uh, well, and I'll, I'll talk about Hong Kong shortly. Um, but a general sense that the benefits of tourism uh, and other sorts of uh, cross strait business weren't weren't being shared, and this was coming at the expense of Taiwan's uh, uh, right to self determination. There was concern among Taiwanese uh, activists, students, uh, civil society, NGOs, academic and otherwise, that some of these bills might actually uh, sell out Taiwan uh, and, and tie its hands uh, when, it, when it came to, to making its own decisions. Uh, and so this bill, which was nearly passed uh, in committee, uh, despite a promised review, a line-by-line -line review that the KMT uh, dominated committee had, uh, had said it would do. It was basically passed uh, in committee in the legislature, and it would have had an all but certain signature by the President Ma were it not for a kind of a motley group of activists who stormed peacefully, who stormed the uh, Taiwan's legislative UN, its parliament, uh, gently carried out uh, the very, very few people that were guarding it, and then set about uh, to have uh, an occupation that lasted much longer than anyone uh, anticipated, uh, 24 days. And I, I joined this myself uh, to uh, get a better sense as a participant observer and action researcher of what was happening to Taiwan's um, cross-state relations and its, and its domestic society. Uh, the, the movement, uh, it demanded that 
there be more oversight of cross-strait uh, agreements uh, that this particular bill uh, not be passed without uh, more review and so on. And, and those, those conditions were basically met and the occupation ended having been supported uh, according to national polls by a majority of Taiwan's people. Uh, and, and this was also quite, quite visible with a uh, 500,000 person rally in front of the presidential office just 12 days after the occupation started uh, on March 30th. And this, this has been considered uh, you know, then and now as really a watershed moment in, in Taiwan's political transformation. And I argue in the book that although tourism was actually very much part of the trade deal that, that triggered this, uh, it wasn't talked about all that much by the activists themselves. Uh, some of the, the spokespeople, uh, including uh, Lin Feifan, uh, Chen Weiting, uh, the student activists who who were the most visible faces of the movement, did speak a bit about the deleterious effects of Chinese tourism uh, on on Taiwan, but it, it wasn't really their major concern. Their major concern was was self determination uh, and and um, and the right of Taiwanese people to to decide their own fate. Uh, the Sunflower Movement uh, was basically marked the end of Ma's uh, capacity to uh, to. To, to really get anything done in Taiwan, you know, even in his, in his own party. Uh, and it also precipitated the landslide defeat of the KMT uh, in, in the subsequent elections uh, and the, the election of Tsai Ing-wen uh, from the Democratic Progressive Party, uh, which uh, disavowed the 1992 consensus under which tourism had proceeded uh, and then led to uh, kind of a retaliatory cut to all tourism from China to Taiwan. Uh, to to punish Tsai and maybe even the electorate uh, for not proceeding under this one China premise uh, and to encourage Taiwanese voters uh, and industry to try to bring back the KMT, which which has so far uh, not really worked, uh, at least not in the national election level. So at the same time, uh, so this chapter traces this whole arc, and it does so also in light of what happened in Hong Kong in 2014 uh, and subsequently which was the umbrella movement uh, in late 2014, which I also uh, joined as an action researcher. Uh, it began uh, in late September and proceeded through, uh, through mid-December in Hong Kong. And this had ostensibly nothing to do with tourism. This was about Hong Kong's capacity to elect its own chief executive, basically to vote in its own mayor, uh, which had been sort of, uh, sort of promised to Hong Kong uh, under uh, a over the years, uh, be it both between China and the UK, but also a, a general promise uh, to move towards democracy and universal suffrage in Hong Kong that was denied by the Beijing leadership, leading to uh, uh, what, what turned into, again, a much longer occupation, the 79-day occupation of multiple urban sites that, that no one had quite anticipated, and that was in some ways inspired by Taiwan's sunflower movement. Uh, these movements drew energy from each other and, and multiplied each other. And the Sunflower, the Umbrella Movement uh, was not ostensibly about tourism. Uh, it was, the demands were for basically just for the right to elect their own executive. But there were all sorts of signs about how tourism had driven popular discontent. Hong Kong people, uh, Hong Kong nationalists and otherwise had been demonstrating against Chinese tourists uh, in ways that even Taiwanese nationalists had not, um, uh, asserting that prices were being driven up, that uh, pharmacy shelves were being emptied of medicines, that milk was being bought up by traders uh, who were uh, profiting off of, of differences in prices, 
uh, and that this was damaging uh, Hong Kong people's chances to to, to live uh, and and, uh, and and sustain themselves. So there there were all sorts of signs, visual uh, and otherwise. I took many photos during my time there uh, of of popular discontent with tourism. Uh, so this this chapter kind of thinks about these two movements uh, together. You know, why is it that Taiwanese people weren't so vociferously against tourism? while Hong Kong people were, uh, even though the sparks for these two movements, you know, one was sort of about tourism and one wasn't. And, and I sort of conclude that most Taiwanese people weren't that directly impacted by a sense of being overrun by Chinese tourists, whereas Hong Kong people were given a much smaller space uh, and also much larger numbers of them. Uh, but more importantly, Taiwanese people uh, can vote. You know, they can vote in their own president. They can sort of set their own foreign policy, whereas Hong Kong people can't. So the Sunflower Movement and the election of Tsai, uh, I, I, I speculate, gave Taiwanese people a release valve that spared Chinese tourists from being subject to direct discontent or demonstration in a way that uh, they weren't in Hong Kong. You know, many Chinese tourists uh, actually felt uh, they received a very hostile attitude. From Hong Kong people, some of whom even went and, and uh, demonstrated loudly against them, you know, both during the umbrella movement and after. Uh, and by by 2019, um, as listeners may be aware, uh, popular discontent in in Hong Kong vis-a-vis uh, -vis its relationship with China and its inability to uh, maintain its own legal system and so on uh, exploded uh, in uh, protests against an extradition bill, in which Taiwan actually was was sort of at play as well. Uh, that then also uh, amplified pro-autonomy, pro-self-determination sentiment uh, and campaigning in Taiwan, leading to the re-election of Tsai Ing-wen in 2020 in a landslide against a candidate who had uh, promised to bring in more tourists into Taiwan from China uh, and thereby make Taiwan rich and so on. That sort of claim had no weight anymore. Uh, partly due to failures during the Ma uh, administration, but also due to what happened uh, in Hong Kong in 2019 uh, uh, and so on. Uh, again, leading to uh, yet even starker cuts in tourism, the effective end of tourism from China to Taiwan, the effective end of the one China um, um, policy or vision or uh, 92 consensus, this sort of uh, diplomatic fabrication, leading that to, to have been completely dismantled even before all tourism was effectively blocked and the nail to the coffin hammered tightly shut due, due to the COVID pandemic, which followed uh, and, and in which China and Taiwan also uh, kind of re rearticulated their own place in the global order and vis-a-vis -vis each other in ways that made the, the gulf between them that much starker. Right. And then we talk about, uh, you know, we have talked about different dimensions of the tourism across Taiwan and China that you analyze in this book. And uh, towards the end of your answer, you, always, you also talk about uh, the elephant in the room that is global pandemic of COVID. So um, I was wondering, can you talk a little bit more about how COVID impacted tourism and also the territory regulation formation in Taiwan and beyond? And especially uh, now, as many think and hope, we are now in some degree post-COVID uh, period. So has the uh, Chinese tourism uh, continue in Taiwan or not? How? What's the situation as of now? 
So by late 2019, uh, as, as COVID had uh, popped up in China, although it was not really uh, um, acknowledged as such there or in most of the world, Taiwan's authorities, which pay very close attention to uh, public health issues in China, having learned the hard way in the early 2000s during, during that SARS epidemic, uh, they got concerned about the reports that they were hearing in Wuhan and even sent their own, their own team there. Uh, I write about this, uh, this, this whole history um, and Taiwan's COVID uh, management and its use as a diplomatic device, actually, uh, in an article for the Asia Pacific Journal, Japan Focus called Crafting the Taiwan Model for, for COVID-19. Uh, I, I, I very briefly cover this sort of stuff uh, in the book, but um, by late 2019, when COVID popped up, there was only a trickle of tourists coming from China to Taiwan. Uh, most, most of it had already um, been, been cut by the China side uh, as, as a retaliation against, against Taiwan. Um, but even, even with that trickle, there were still fights coming in from China and Taiwan uh, at that time was the very first uh, country to uh, start actually uh, doing health checks uh, on, on inbound flights, uh, doing temperature checks, and soon actually uh, blocked all travel, uh, first from Wuhan and elsewhere in China, uh, to, to certainly the, the chagrin of the China side. But this was a step that, for better or worse, was copied by many other countries uh, around the world soon after. Uh, Taiwan, you know, due to this sort of very proactive policy and a, a very quick set of quarantines, uh, became uh, one of the only uh, countries to be a more or less COVID-free and stay open without any kind of lockdown in 2020. And, and it was used to uh, promote Taiwan uh, as a, a model for public health and, and good governance and so on around the world by Taiwan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. At the same time, China implemented uh, quite severe lockdowns uh, first in Wuhan and, and then and then elsewhere, uh, and uh, uh, that's a, a much longer story that that has uh, just just sort of sort of transformed in early 2023 as as China starts reopening. Um, but but throughout that period from 2020 to, to 2023, there was you know essentially no tourism from Taiwan to China. Uh, now now that China is reopening uh, and people can go back and forth. There is, again, the, the possibility of, of tourism perhaps uh, recommencing. Uh, however, throughout the entire pandemic period, Taiwan has uh, asserted itself uh, more and more and more visibly on the global stage uh, as, as, as Taiwan, not even so much as the Republic of China, but as Taiwan uh, in ways that, that Beijing has denounced. Uh, Taiwan has... Uh, deepened its diplomatic ties to the U.S. and to Japan uh, throughout this period. And, and even before the pandemic, uh, Taiwan anticipating a tourism shortfall from China that would impact uh, the industry here, uh, hotels, uh, grind handlers, and so on, shifted its marketing efforts towards other sources of tourism, uh, Southeast Asia um, and, and other countries. Uh, and so even, even before the pandemic, uh, as Chinese tourist numbers were dropping, uh, the shortfall was made up at least in terms of, uh, of entries. It's hard to know in terms of spending, but at least uh, in terms of numbers of people entering Taiwan by, by people coming from other countries. Uh, and now that Taiwan is opening up as well, because Taiwan uh, instituted uh, pretty strict quarantine policies uh, and has been one of the, the last countries to loosen those, 
uh, Taiwan itself is now looking to to regrow its tourism industry and is even offering cash incentives. Uh, listeners to this podcast may may be able to even enjoy those uh, in time uh, and and come here uh, and 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 not make money, but uh, spend a little less in the process. Um, but I, you know, based based on all of this, uh, uh, what what's happened um, and what is covered uh, in the book up through through 2022, it seems awfully unlikely that tourism between China and Taiwan will will repeat um, repeat what happened uh, in 2014 uh, when I was doing this kind of group tour research. Uh, and so the, the book kind of ends on um, uh, a bit of a somber note that, that the COVID pandemic by uh, effectively freezing all mobility between Taiwan and China, but also between you know, many places in the world shows uh, just how fragile uh, global order, global mobility is. Uh, borders, you know, had been presumed, I think, by many people uh, uh, in the 90s, there was this kind of uh, rhetoric of, of globalization, borders were falling, uh, money was flowing, tourists, tourists were flowing on and on and on. And tourism actually from China, not just to Taiwan, but to the whole world was this kind of uh, emblem of, of the potential of, of uh, capitalism, of globalization to just proceed uh, indefinitely. There'd be endless growth, everyone make money. And so on, and and COVID has shown just how fragile that kind of fantasy is, uh, as as borders uh, retrenched and were kind of the main technology of, um, of of public health governance. So the book ends on a somber note by reflecting on that, uh, as well as on how tourism's transformations uh, environmentally uh, in Taiwan and elsewhere also, in some ways, preclude its endless expansion. Uh, the more people fly. The more people consume uh, 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 and, and expend carbon and so on, the more the climate changes, the more uh, sea levels change, the more that even some tourist destinations become uh, uh, un unvisitable, that, that, that basically tourism's uh, own, own interests in some ways undermine itself, uh, showing that tourism's capacity to transform, to perform and transform territory uh, are, are multiplying in, in um in profound and as yet to be uh, determined ways uh, in Taiwan, China, and beyond. Right, especially to think about COVID and then to think about how the situation to sort of uh, uh, highlight the uh, management of border and also construction of border as well, especially in the case of tourism. So, uh, Ian, now the book is completed and published, and I was wondering, is there any topic or material that didn't get to be included in the book or um, any other, you know, uh, surprise or unexpected uh, material or moment that you encounter in the process of writing this book? Sure. In any, in any book that relies on a whole lot of firsthand experience and also uh, many, many, many hours of, of interviews, uh, conversations and observations. Um, there's a whole lot of very colorful anecdotes that have to get cut uh, or, or or massaged. Um, I some of some of these are are things that uh, I'd love to include but can't. You know, for example, um, um, naming <laughs> naming some of the the businesses uh, or or naming 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 some of the um, the very shocking things said by uh, some vendors or, or the like, uh, you know, for, for the sake of protecting my informants. Uh, these are things, of course, I, I cut. Um, otherwise, uh, there was a whole chapter uh, of social theory, you know, going deeper into detail about 
performativity, territoriality, and so on. Uh, and to make this book that much more accessible to that many more readers, because this book has, you know, it is a mix of social theory. It, it is a scholarly book, but it is also very much a book uh, of, of narrative, of storytelling. Uh, I, I removed that chapter and I reintegrated some of that theory uh, into the introduction in a way that is that much more accessible for, for general readership. Uh, and so those who do want a bit more of the nuts and bolts uh, of territoriality, some notions I talk about, for example, is territorial social socialization, uh, could consult some of my journal articles, uh, for example, in the uh, Annals of Tourism Research or the Annals of the Association, uh, the American Association of Geographers and so on. Uh, but there is some some uh, major, uh, I think, improvements since that work, uh, a notion I developed in this book, for example, of uh, territorial translation. Uh, the guide who I spoke about when, when talking about the group tour in chapter four, serving as a territorial translator, that the, the, word, the word use, um, the way he described uh, Taiwan uh, and, and what he called the mainland, uh, not Taiwan and China, these sorts of things uh, translated and in so doing enacted these territories uh, in ways that I'm, I'm really glad uh, that I was able to expand on uh, in this book, even as I made it um, a, a smoother uh, and friendlier read. For, for, for anyone who cracks it open. All right. So uh, thank you. And now we are uh, moving toward the end of our interview. And we have this uh, final question for you, Ian. That is, uh, what are you working on right now? Or what will be your next project now that this book project is completed and published? Sure, thanks. Well, first off, uh, this book will appear in uh, Chinese language uh, at probably the end of this year, published by a Taiwanese publisher. Oh, that's great. Riv Gosh. So we've already arranged the translator, and I'm looking forward to seeing this. Uh, the goal is to have it ready for sale before the next election, which will certainly pivot on cross-strait issues. So uh, I look forward to, to that, um, to make the book that much more accessible as well to readers in Taiwan. Uh, I'd love, of course, to publish it in China, but that's really unlikely. Uh, but but Chinese readers can certainly buy uh, uh, access to the book in other ways, hopefully. Uh, stuff I'm working on in English that will be out soon. Uh, one is an article on the invention of uh, Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan, Gang Tai, as an imaginary region. Uh, if you go anywhere in China, you look at Chinese media, you look at Chinese travel booking, and so on, you'll see... Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan spoken of as if they're in similar, they have a similar territorial status, as if they're all parts of China, but with just slightly different rule. Uh, and so I have an article that will be out uh, in the coming months in Eurasian geography and economics that goes through this. It shows actually how recent this coinage was, uh, how, how uh, it was invented uh, in the 80s and 90s when the PRC set up an office to manage uh, Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan affairs and how that language filtered out. Uh, and I talk about this as uh, a way to actually simulate territory, but again, with, with, uh, with real world material effects. I have another article that will be out shortly, uh, open access uh, in the Journal of Festive Studies. And this is about uh, actually something I've been involved in for, for a couple decades now. This is the globalization of the event culture known as Burning Man. Uh, it's a large experimental arts uh, festival that started uh, in San Francisco and then Nevada in the United States, and that actually has manifestations uh, in Taiwan and China. Uh, I, I hope to start these events uh, and, and continue to, to be involved with them. 
but also how not just about these events themselves, but about how the this is surprising and actually quite funny. The Chinese Communist Party uh, actually has tried to co-opt this and come up with their own kind of Burning Man event, uh, even pursuing a joint venture with the Burning Man project and so on, and then going so far as to copycat it in the Gobi Desert. Uh, and I, I, I look at this as an example of what I call capitalist surrealism, uh, actually, that even though the U.S. and China have been engaged in a renewed Cold War rhetoric, that actually they're converging in some very, very interesting and surprising ways, especially given uh, the infusion also of tech capital into the U.S. events, but also the, the alliance of um, industry and, and government. Uh, uh, in China, pursuing these sorts of uh, events is a way to to, uh, to gain cultural capital. Uh, so this will be out in a couple months. Uh, I, I, I look forward to, um, to to maybe even building that into a larger book project. Uh, more germane and specific to Taiwan, I'm also editing a new series of books uh, of literature. Uh, one will be an anthology of eco-literature uh, in translation uh, to introduce a very different side of Taiwan to, to uh, readers um, in the US, Europe, and elsewhere uh, in English uh, that will showcase not just this kind of Taiwan as a way to think about China or China as a way to think about Taiwan, not just uh, Cold War, these, these sorts of um, uh, often very violent social histories, but also Taiwan uh, as a place to think about ecology, as a place to think about uh, the Anthropocene, as a, a place to think about uh, more than human interactions. And this, this is... Uh, I think important, lovely, wonderful, uh, and exciting, especially given uh, how a number of Taiwanese writers, such as Wu Mingyi, the author of The Man with the Compound Eyes and The Soul and Bicycle, have been gaining attention really for making contributions to world literature. So I'm excited to help showcase that uh, for an English reading audience, uh, along with some, some expert uh, translators uh, and co-editors. Uh, we have a couple other books coming out in this series. Uh, which is sponsored by the National Museum of Taiwan Literature. Uh, they're helping to fund this. Uh, and also my, my institution, uh, at NTNU, National Taiwan Normal University. And we, we expect these books uh, to be out uh, next year. The other two novels in this series will be uh, uh, The Eyes of the Sea by the indigenous writer uh, Shaman Rapongan uh, from uh, Lanyu, from Orchid Island, a, a Dao writer, uh, a really quite extraordinary character. Uh, and a book, the working title, Still Life in White, uh, by uh, Lai Xianyin, uh, which is uh, set uh, in the Cold War white terror period of Taiwan, but explores it uh, within Taiwan, but also in a transnational frame in Europe. So I'm, I'm really uh, uh, honored and humbled to be uh, kind of steering, uh, stewarding these projects uh, into fruition for, for uh, English language readers. So that's kind of kind of where I'm at. All right. Wow. Thank you for sharing. And then especially, you know, looking forward to your book translated, uh, you know, into the Chinese language that, you know, we can uh, share your research with uh, even more readers and specifically Sinophone readers as well. And we look forward to your forthcoming articles and many more of your works. And uh, with that, uh, I want to thank you, Ian, for being on the show today. I really enjoy our conversation. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And I also want to thank you, our audience, for staying with us to the end. I hope everybody's taking good care and see you guys next time. Goodbye. <laughs>